in so many ways, a more beautiful way was really birthed out of my desire to find a new pathway to engage issues of race. And while the project has expanded way beyond that, at its core is my desire to find third ways in the world. And what I mean by a third way is that so often in times of division and divisiveness and polarization, it can feel like you only have two options. And most humans that I talk to anyway, don't actually fit neatly in either of whatever two boxes were given. And so this desire to find a third way, a more beautiful way, has just become increasingly strong in my own life and leadership. And I'm really interested in having conversations with people who aren't just interested in assigning blame and in rejecting responsibility, but I want to talk to people who have a sense of the healing pathways that we need in order to build towards a better future. Hello, hello, and welcome to A More Beautiful Way. My name is Bethany Wilkinson. I am your host, and A More Beautiful Way is a project dedicated to slowing down, simplifying, and finding the sacred in our everyday lives. Today's show is incredibly special to me because you get to hear from Lisa Sharon Harper, who is a storyteller, an author, an activist, a creative, an artist, um, the founder of Freedom Road. She leads um, healing, racial healing pilgrimages around the world, really. Um, She's really passionate about helping us close the narrative gaps we have in history. Um, She's amazing. And I've linked to so much of her incredible work in the show notes. I wanted to share this conversation with you because kind of like I mentioned in the intro commentary, Finding healing pathways in the midst of racial division and racial injustice is something that I'm really passionate about. And it was, and I, and that desire was one of the driving forces for the creation of this project. And so I'm really grateful to be able to share this conversation with Lisa. Um, She offers multiple healing pathways as we as people in the United States grapple with our history again and again. And as we take seriously what it means to repair harm and to even extend forgiveness. And so she really gets into the weeds of this um, just so powerfully. And I can't wait for you to hear the conversation. So without further ado, here is my chat with Lisa Sharon Harper. excited to have you here today, Lisa Sharon Harper, author, (laughs) preacher, teacher, activist extraordinaire. I've just admired you so much for so many years. So thank you for being a part of this conversation with me. Thank you, Bethany, for having me. It's been really, it's, it's, I'm looking forward to this conversation and it's Mm -hmm. been kind of a whirlwind over the last couple of weeks. So it's fun to make a pit stop here and let's, let's talk. I'm looking forward to it. 
Oh, well, my first question for you, this is where I kick off all of my conversations. Um, I'd love to hear where do you begin as a person, as an activist, however you go on to describe yourself, where, where do you, Lisa Sharon Harper, where do you begin as a human? Wow, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I, I, and I've said this to a few people, um, and I've done this before I talked, before I even wrote Fortune. I really can't say this is who I am without actually going back to my ancestors because I know that I am literally who I am because of them. Um, they are literally living in me. They, I have their DNA, their body, their DNA, their science is inside of me, which is crazy to think about. But also they literally laid the path, all of the scars, um, the struggles and also the strengths and the, the, the resilience strategies are passed down, right, from generations. And, um, and so I, I am Fortune. I am Fortune Game McGee, who is my 10 times, or not 10, she's my seven times great-grandmother. Nine generations ago, she lived. Um, I am Sambo Games, um, uh, great, 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 to the, to the eighth degree grandchild. And he was brought here in, um, from Senegal he was the second son of his family. Um, and he fell in love and had fortune with a woman named Maudlin McGee. So I'm Maudlin McGee's um, nine times or eight times great grandchild. Um, I am Leah Ballard's little girl, you know, um, third great grandchild. And she was the last enslaved woman in our family. She lived in South Carolina. All of these people are talked about in Fortune and my whole, like the last 30 years have been kind of um, immersed in the process of finding out who I am by learning their stories. I am my mother's daughter. She um, was a member of SNCC. She rebelled against white supremacy as it was manifesting here in South Philadelphia in the North, but yet she had de facto segregation. She had um, she had a, a white school two blocks away from her, and she wasn't allowed to go there because she was called out of district. But her next door neighbor, who was white, was going there, and she had to go to the black school right across the street that had subpar books that were handed down generations later from the white school. Um, you know, um, but then she joined SNCC as a as an as a teenager. Um, and helped to push back against white supremacy here in Philadelphia. It was actually the first Northern outpost for SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I am my father's daughter. My father um, was a photographer and, um, and also a salesperson. <laughs> so he became a car salesman later in his life and he was really, really good at it. And so, you know, I think I definitely get my entrepreneurial spirit from him. Um, and uh, and, and, and my grandmother, Willa, who sang and really was the heart of the family. She was the heart blood, the heartbeat that everybody else revolved around. Um, and she, uh, I believe, was abused um, in the middle of domestic service in South Carolina. And when she finally was brought north by her mom in the Great Migration, she never did look back. She never turned back. And instead... She waited, she waited tables in a jazz club and ended up, she says, sang with Count Basie once. <laughs> we don't know that to be true, but we, we're, well, I'll take it. You know what I mean, Grandma? So I think it's probably, it probably is true. Mm -hmm. um, she had a really beautiful voice. So, uh, you know, that's who, that's who made me. 
And, but of course we are all our own people and we make our own decisions and we live in, a, in our own unique era. And so we respond to that era, but we're responding with all of the input that has been given before for all these generations and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, what's my era and what are the choices that I've made? I, I am an evangelical. I have to be honest about that. <laughs> it feels like a confession nowadays, but <laughs> it really does. I mean, well, you know, because I, I walked down the aisle of a Sunday evening camp church meeting in 1983, and I gave my life to Jesus, and it still sticks, and it's real. It really is real. Yeah. Um, there's a real relationship, a transformation that happens yes. in my life, a before Jesus and an after Jesus, Lisa. It really is true. And um, so I can't deny that because of some cray cray people that are like ruining everything right now. Mm. That is, that is, that's the basis of my faith. Um, but I've also gone through a decolonizing process for the whiteness in white evangelical. And I also don't believe that evangelical equals Christian. I think evangelical is one stream of the Christian faith. And, um, and, and I, Actually, I'm sure I practice multiple streams, you know, when I'm really like honest, right? So the mainline stream, the black church stream, it's all up in me um, and um, Episcopal, you know, and so my parents and my, my great grandparents, they were all black Episcopal, black, black Episcopalians. Um, uh, and so I am um, an artist, um, I'm a leader and I am a, a racial healer. Um, but I think more than anything at the heart, I'm a storyteller. And yeah. so my goal in life is really to, to tell the story and tell it in a way that we get it, we understand, yeah. and it moves us to live differently in the world. Um, yeah. And so I am also the founder of Freedom Road, um, a consulting group, and our purpose in living and the purpose in, of existing is to shrink the gap between the narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the truth. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things and a writer and, you know, a few books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yes, and amen to everything you just said. And I, I even appreciate you naming being an evangelical as I think of my own faith journey. Mm -hmm. It does feel a bit like a confession. I was just in my own writing and <laughs> my own spiritual practice. I'm like, Oh my goodness. I still follow Jesus, even though uh -huh. I've gone on such a journey over the last couple of years. I just appreciate how you frame that. I'm like, this, this is true. And it would be a lie for me to pretend like it's not true. Gotcha. Um, so I appreciate you saying that. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask you about creativity because as I held your book in my hands, this beautiful, powerful, incredible storytelling, great resource for people. Um, Thank you. I just, I was thinking about like, wow, Lisa has created so many things, you know, books, a company. I've been in rooms where you have been facilitating or preaching or teaching um, the pilgrimages that you design and the podcasting that you do. And like, you're an incredibly creative person. And so I'm wondering how you think about this particular offering, the book Fortune, as it's, I don't know, as it's a part of your broader list of offerings like what does it feel like yeah. to you how do you categorize it or think about it is it the same is it different wow. tell what me a more great question oh I like these questions so here's the thing I, I really do believe that fortune in many many ways is the culmination of all of it um in fact you know I, I when I first thought of the book of what I want to do through this book I want to bring people through a pilgrimage 
they, we are, we are pilgrimaging through across many lands Mm -hmm. and we're doing the same thing we would do on a bus. We're just doing it in our imaginations now, right? We're, we are literally going and meeting people and talking with them and, and hearing their stories and learning the history before the history in order to understand the context of things. We're asking the questions of how does this interact with our faith? The same thing we would normally do on a bus in a pilgrimage, right? How does this interact with our faith, with our spiritual formation? Um, and, and we're allowing these stories to reshape us. Um, so, I, you know, pilgrimage has been such a huge part, I mean, central part mm-hmm. of my own spiritual formation. And so when I sat down to write this book, I really did think of it as like a literary pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And so it was my job. And also just know that um, in, in our Freedom Road pilgrimages, one of the things that is like at the core of our values um, on any pilgrimage is to tell a story. So we are a story-based organization um, and, our, and with story-based strategy. So on every pilgrimage we do, we always have a beginning of the story, a middle of the story, and a right now. And so when you look at the structure of fortune, that's exactly what you get. You get the roots of race in America. You get the fruits and the implications of race in America. Like what, what did it do? The structure, the political structure of race. What did it do? What has mm-hmm. it cost us? And then in the very end, the last three chapters, the last part of the book is right now. So how does this all relate to right now? And also, also, obviously, that is the right now is woven throughout the whole text, but it's in pure form in those last three chapters. But even then, we're still weaving the stories of the family throughout those last three chapters. So um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, for me, when I think of a fortune, it is, um, it is, it is my manifesto. Mm -hmm. That's the sense that I got from reading it and even watching as you've talked about it. I'm like, I feel like this is maybe not the pinnacle, but a pinnacle. Um, Maybe the, you would have to define that for us, but it felt like this powerful, potent culmination of so much great work. Um, Throughout the book, you tell the story of remembering your family's story. And I love how you put the hyphen, remember, put back together, find the pieces And I'd love for you to share a little bit about the process as much as you want to. And then I'm curious to hear what sustained you in the process, Um, because this isn't something that you, you know, popped on Google and you found it (laughs) in one day, you know, it is a journey to go gather these pieces of our stories. And so what inspired the process and then what sustained you through it? So what inspired it 30 years ago, 1991, I got on the phone with my mom and I just was at the place where I wanted to know who are we? And I want you to tell me, and I now know I I need to go backward in order to understand who I am going forward. And so she sat down with me and actually um, created the very first that walked me through. And on the other end of the line, I created the very first family tree that I'd ever written in my life. And on that family tree, there were no names, um, only like relationships. Grandpop was born this time and died that time and lived in this place, right? great grandpop. And we were patriarchal. It was only the men, interestingly enough. Um, you know, I don't know where that came from, but it's real. It was definitely in me. And I see that there, but we did. And I think part of it also was that I was trying to figure out, I was most interested at that time in figuring out this Henry Lawrence. I mean, I grew up loving my grandpop, Junius Lawrence. He was my favorite. Oh, I love Junius Lawrence, but he was only in my life for a few years, about 
five years, maybe six years before he passed away from lung cancer. And so, you know, so Junius Lawrence in many ways was kind of a mythical character for me. Once I got into my teens, I, I remembered him, but it was kind of ethereal. And I didn't know Hiram, who my mom knew. And she showed me pictures of her sitting down cross-legged, you know, in a, in, um, in a, like a marsh on a trail um, out in Elmwood, Philadelphia, that looked like it was in the sticks. Wow. <laughs> but it turns out it was like near his house. He owned a whole block of homes in Elmwood. Um, and he would take the kids on these walks and sit with them in the middle. And he would tell them the stories, the stories of the people, the stories of where they come from. And he shared with her that they are, they, they have Cherokee and Chickasaw heritage. So I wanted to know more about that. That was really what I was most interested in at that point, because I was trying to figure out, is this true? Like, what do you know? So we traveled down the, the Lawrence line, which is that male, 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 male line. And we hit a wall at Henry Lawrence, although I didn't even have his name then. I just knew he was, the, he was my second great grandpa and um, was born 1842 and died. I don't even know what, at that point, we didn't know when he died. And, um, but he lived in Kentucky, um, in Ohio County, Kentucky. And so that's what started it. And for years, we just wanted to know who we were. But then my mom made the discovery that her, I mean, Hiram's wife's name was Ella Fortune. And she was trying to trace that line, the, like the women's line in the Lawrence, you know, Ella became Ella Lawrence when she married Hiram. Hmm. But she wanted to know more about him. And she discovered that there might be a connection between Ella and Fortune Game McGee and Sambo. And she's like, oh my gosh, you know, all right. So, so. Then I, I did a search for Philip, which was her father. And so we, we got to Philip. We knew Philip was her dad um, from a census data. And then we found Philip's name on the other side of the Civil War, on the, like, before the Civil War, which means he was free. And I just was like, how is Philip free? I don't understand this. Philip Fortune, how is he free? In Virginia, a black boy he was a little wow. boy at the time what so that then that then helped us to to confirm it's not the only thing to confirm but it's one of those things that made us go whoa like how could he be free and then of course you learn about the fortune line they were free since the mid 1700s um in maryland and and in virginia and they lived in the same area where my, where my Philip Fortune was from, and his father, Robert Fortune, we eventually found out, was likely the son of Thomas Fortune, who was the son of Humphrey Fortune, who was the son of Sarah Fortune, who was the daughter of Fortune Game McGee, and who was the daughter of Sambo Game and Maudlin McGee. So, you know, so I'm starting to realize, and, and it trans, like, transitioned into a book and not just family research, when I realized that Fortune Game McGee was born in 1687, just 23 years after the very first race laws in Maryland, and her mixed race body absorbed the terror and the control of those very first laws. And looking through the generations, because we've been here so long, we have actually interacted with most, if not, not all, but most of the, the different constructs that were created in order to construct this political thing called race. 
and it did impact our lives. So I started realizing this is not just my story. Yeah. This is America's story of race mm -hmm. and it needs to be told. And so let's do it. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, I'm guessing people have to go get this book and read it. <laughs> Boy, A. Um, but B, I'm thinking about in one part of your book, you, ex and I think this is in the final section there where you are really landing all of the different ways your family story is presently relevant to our lives and our nation's story today. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about the individual process of remembering the sort of um, civic and institutional process, but then the national process of remembering. And so as I read through that and really, you know, took in your vision for how these different institutions can do this work collectively, one of the questions that emerged for me was, um, or maybe one of the tensions I began to feel was how sometimes the process of remembering can feel inaccessible because it's like we have these I thought of, I mean, in my town, we have this historic society and I was doing some digging on who's on the board of this historic society. And it's like all of the wealthy people from our town. And I'm like, oh, that's mm -hmm. interesting. They have a vested interest in telling a very particular story yes. about my Southern town. Yes, they do. And, yes. yes. They do. Mm -hmm. And so I just started thinking like, oh my gosh, there are these endowments and these societies who have so much money and they want to tell one story. So how does little old me <laughs> tell, tell, the, tell another story to start shrinking that gap? What are your thoughts on that? Here's how you do it, Bethany. You do your family story. You go into your family story. Now, I realize you're going to have to get documents. You're going to have to go to the courthouse. You're going to have to go look at deed documents because what you'll, you'll find a lot in deeds. You'll find the land that they had. You'll find the terms of the deed. Um, if they owned the land, if they rented the land, all of those things, they'll all be there. Um, but you also, you can find so much information online. I mean, in Ancestry.com, that's the amazing thing about that platform, and they are not paying me, um, is that it's actually user populated. So users put, put documents onto Ancestry, and then other users can access them. So there's new documents coming online literally every day, thousands of new documents every day. Um, and so I want to encourage you do, do that, like do your family story and don't just build your tree to build it out. Like a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. What you need to do is ask the question, what was going on in America? Wow. When your family was alive, how might, and how did they respond for that? You're going to have to do interviews with your grandma, with your great grandma, if she's still around, um, with aunties and uncles, figure out who are the story keepers in your family. There are always griots in the black family. There's always one, at least one, mm -hmm. who is the story keeper. Go talk to them because they've done the work. And they are normally the, the, the ones that have the stories been passed down to. They hold the story in order to give it. So give them someone to give it to. Give it to you, right? Um, and then do the work of what was happening in Monroe County, if that's where they were, when they were alive. How did that, whatever that was, impact them? Um, in fact, as I, as I, as I'm thinking about this, I'm wondering, I don't know if it's true, but I'm wondering if Monroe County is where some of the lynching, um, statistics was gathered because there's the Monroe project that was done, um, uh, that's online. And I actually got a lot of my statistics from it. It's an amazing project that was done around the turn of the century. But, um, I know that Georgia was a place where a lot of lynchings happened. 
Um, and where is Monroe County located exactly? It's about an hour south of Atlanta and about 30 minutes north of Macon. Okay. So if that's right relevant. there in the middle, kind of, kind mm-hmm. of in, in the middle, in the middle of, of the South, the middle yes. of the, of the deep, really the deep South of, um, of, of Georgia, which is where that was, that was brutal. It was brutal country out in that area. Um, we often think of Georgia as being progressive because of Atlanta and also because, you know, we had Andrew Young as the mayor, you know, for, for a long time. And Stacey Abrams just won, like that was, became made Georgia blue, but Georgia has actually has had a very um, bloody past in terms mm-hmm. of uh, in terms of race riots, in terms of um, and by riots I mean massacres. Um, the Atlanta riot massacre of 1906 is one of those. You know, so when these things happened, where were your ancestors and how did they respond? This is what this is what the, this detail this stepping into their shoes will help you to understand some of the choices that they made Mm -hmm. and the choices that they made laid the path for you. Yeah, really. It it created the foundation upon which you stand, whether that's shaky or solid, um, whether it's um, safe or unsafe, you know, as in safe, as in, and there's really no, no safe place in America. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but my great grandmother Lizzie, who in the book is, I mean, she has a chapter after her, and I love that chapter too because the chapter kind of time travels; it jumps back and forth between different times, um, uh, so that you can see her life at different points and decisions that she's making. But Lizzie decided to go north in the Great Migration. She decided to leave everything her family had known for hundreds of years mm-hmm. in the South, and so she went north to to DC first, and then finally to Philadelphia. And I'd never understood exactly why she would do that until I started to research the context within which she lived, right? Lizzie lost everything because up to that, really up to the civil rights movement, up to the civil rights act, loss was the, was the gruel of African-American life. Loss was, um, was the grits. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was what we had. We had loss for breakfast every morning. And, um, and so that loss, she lost her, she lost her mother in childbirth because there were no hospitals for black people. So it was only the midwife and her mother. And turns out our pelvises in our, in the, on that women's line of our family are small. And so childbirth is actually a dangerous thing. So she died in childbirth. So Lizzie grew up without her mother. And then her sister was raped by a family member, by an uncle um, who was, who, whose mother Leah Ballard was likely, um, while enslaved, she was likely a breeder, somebody who got raped on the regular and whose first five children, um, likely five children are nowhere to be found, likely sold deeper into the South, into Georgia, actually, into the deep part of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so she lost, and she lost her, her sister because she was raped in the woods and died in childbirth again, or soon after childbirth from, from complications. And so, but she decided I'm not going to allow that to be the last point in my story. So she's one of those people who taught us what rebellion and resistance looks like. She left, Mm -hmm. Um, she left and she used the only card she had, her light skin. because she was only about one eighth black actually because everybody had been raped in our family. Mm -hmm. And so 
she went north and she passed. She didn't tell anybody she was white, but she also didn't tell them she was black. Sure. And so she passed for white and got a great job waitressing at the Grand Hotel, was able to buy a home, was able to send for her darker children, my grandmother, who was one of them, um, and when she was able to be stable. And then she was found out. She was found out and she was placed in the kitchen where she worked for the rest of her days because at the Grand Hotel and any hotels in Philadelphia and New Jersey, black people were not allowed to work on the floor of the, of the restaurants. Um, we were the bus people, we were the, we were the kitchen help, mm-hmm. unseen. And so, but even then, even then, during the, during the Great Depression, Lizzie became a renowned baker in that kitchen. And she would take all of the baked goods that were left over every day and she would take them home and she would feed the community with those baked goods. So, you know, there's an ethic in that, right? There's an ethic of, of, of being connected to the community. She passed for white, but she never was, never was disconnected from the community. She just didn't let others know her yeah. home life, right? But she was always connected to the, to the community. In fact, she married a dark-skinned man um, Mr. Gillerson. And um, yeah, and, and so I think that the, the work that we have to do in order to subvert those larger narratives is actually the stories of our, of our families, because your family's story is history. That's mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Um, so I'm wondering, and I only have a couple more questions for you. Um, I'm also taking it in the invitation that you have extended for me to go um, do this work. And, and I'm excited to go do that. A little nervous, um, just being oh, yeah. in Georgia I- and being from Georgia. Um, what you'll and find, I, right? You don't know I'm nervous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous about what I'll find. I get it. Um, but I, I also want to ask you about forgiveness. Um, so it's a little bit switching gears just a bit, but mm-hmm. I really felt, I don't know, seen maybe really supported like on my insides when I read what you were writing about forgiveness, because I oh, think, wow. I think that in the flurry of anguish and activism of the world over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and even experiencing the fracturing of some of my faith communities and my participation Mm -hmm. in those communities, I was like, oh yeah, forgiveness. It kind of is like something that I forgot, honestly, in a way. And so when I read, yeah. (laughs) Me too, actually. I'll I'll explain. Say say what you're going to say. Yes. Well, I just wanted to, yes, please explain. Cause I was just like, wow, this is really important. And as I read about it, I reflected on a couple of experiences I've had over the last year or so where this invitation to forgive did pop up. And I was like, oh, this is really important. <laughs> and so uh, let's talk about it. What, what is coming up for you even in this moment as you reflect on what you wrote about, about forgiveness and the role it's played in the last yeah. few years for you? So forgiveness is for the sake of the oppressed, not the oppressor. Um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela called on the South African people, the black South African and, and quote, colored South Africans to forgive. And they, as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they had one piece of it was amnesty 
for those who confessed. And amnesty is a form of forgiveness. That's what that is. And it racked my brain why they did that. And I took a pilgrimage to Robben Island and walked Robben Island in the shoes of Nelson Mandela. Um, I was stood, I stood in the lime quarry pit, the place where they did, they did the work of dehumanization, where they forced the men who were imprisoned there to cut the rocks that built their own prison where they forced the men to cut rocks and move them to a mile down the island. And then the next day, move the same rock back and again and again. Work is supposed to make us flourish. Work is supposed to work toward our flourishing. It's not supposed to be idle. Idle work is actually dehumanizing work. And that's, and they, so that, that lime quarry was actually a place of dehumanization. But the men in the movement Nelson Mandela and others actually turned it into the university of the movement. That was the place where they taught young boys to, to read. That's where they taught the principles of nonviolence to new people coming into the prison. It was kind of an amazing thing that they did. And as I was standing there learning this history, I realized, you know, the anti-apartheid movement was not just a movement that was anti-oppression. It was an anti-dehumanization movement. They were resisting dehumanization. And all of a sudden I realized that's probably the reason why Nelson Mandela called for amnesty and forgiveness because that is pure power. It is pure power to have the power to forgive, to release your oppressor from that which they can never repay. You know, I, the way that I've come to talk about it is it's like, White folk here in America, they owe us a hundred bucks. Let's just say a hundred bucks. This is like, you know, uh, metaphorical, but they only have five. And we can stand here and demand the next 95 from them till we die. But who, who is impacted by that, by that setup? We are, we actually, the white folk are fine. They're just going to, you know, they just get tired of listening to us demand $95 that they don't have, but, or let's say, $45, right? That they don't have, they pay up 60 um, or 35, right? So I'm so bad at math. You get, you get my point. I'm tracking with you. So you track with me, right? So, but bottom line is let's just, let's stick with the, with the simple one, 95.5. So we, we demand that till the day we die. And we're the ones who die with a $95 deficit. We die with a $95 deficit. But if we forgive we release them from the need to pay us back the thing that they just do not have. In other words, to bring back the communities they broke up, to resurrect the people that they killed, to, to, to give what they do not have. Then we are the ones who suffer. But if we release, if we release them, and then we turn to our own cores, we turn to our own capacity to exercise agency, our own call to exercise dominion in the world, our own call to our own divine image of God within us that God listens to, our own capacity to work. And I don't just mean work for pay. I mean, actually push, push for a new world. We have the ability to build this new world. We do. And when we say to the, the people who oppressed us, 
You can go now. We don't need you anymore. Now. Go. We release you. And then we turn to our own core and we turn to God, the one who owns cattle on a thousand hills, the one who moves mountains. And as the children of God, as we all are, all humanity is, we turn to God and we say, all right, God, I know it's your delight, your delight to provide for your children. Yeah. It's time for you to move that mountain, God. It's time for you to ante up. And you know what? It's God's delight to do so. So we could, we could actually have that $95 filled by another source, by our own selves and by God. But if we demand it from those who don't have it to give, we die in the deficit. So that is the power of forgiveness. And I think that it was misinterpreted by the white South Africans, quite honestly. Um, and it's also important to note that reparations is the chapter that comes first before forgiveness, that there still needs to be payment for those things that can be repaid. If it yes. can be repaid, it must be repaid mm -hmm. because that redress, that is how we begin to heal the relationship. If we do it in that order, if we tell the truth, and white people, people of European descent, take in that truth and allow that truth to change the way that they interact in the world. And then there is redress. They listen to what we have been saying about what it's going to take in order for things to be made well with us, which is what David did with the Gibeonites. He asked them, he, he, he recognized their divine call to exercise stewardship of the world. And over that moment, and he asked them, what do you say needs to happen in order for things to be made well with you? And they told him because they had already had their council meeting. They came prepared. So he did it without asking one question. If we do that, if, if folks of European descent and the government were to do that, then we could come to this question of forgiveness with actual relationship intact. Like relationship, at least we know that there is, there is a change, there's transition happening. There's, there's a change in the way that we're relating to each other in the world. So when we release you, when we, when we, when we say you can go now, we're not saying you can go to hell. <laughs> sure. Although quite honestly, if you haven't done those first, those first steps, we, it is a release of relationship period because relationship requires repentance. Forgiveness doesn't require repentance. Relationship requires repentance. And reparations is repentance. But forgiveness is for our sake. It is not dependent on anything anybody does. It is our choice. And that's yes. why it's empowering. Yes. And so when we do it, we are cutting the tie that binds us together. Um, the toxic tie that tells us a lie that we need this white person to do right in order for me to be well. I don't need you to do right for me to be well. I have God and I have my own self. Yes. Right? Yes. Right. Right. And I know also like very, um, 
the, the wells of capacity that open up, at least in my own soul and in my own story, when I have released <laughs> others in forgiveness, it's amazing. Just the, the creativity, the energy, the hope, and that the ability and the space to, to go build that new world, um, to go build the world with God and in community with others who are trying to build towards beloved community of which you speak um, so powerfully. I've heard you talk about it in other settings. Um, well, my last question for you is, um, and this you may, maybe you've already spoken to this, but when you look at the world or maybe at your world, your context right now, what are you longing for most? Mm. Hey, you know what? I would love to read the last page of fortune, because yes. I think that that really outlines best what I long for in the world. Mm, beautiful. Okay. There are two paths set before the oppressed. One path leads to rage, compounded pain, sickness, and death. The other leads to the beloved community. On that road, there is truth seeking, truth listening, and truth telling. There is reparation and equity, and there is mercy release for the sake of my body and soul and the bodies and souls of my family's descendants to the 10th generation from me, I choose the beloved community. For readers in European bodies, you also have a choice. You can continue your war for supremacy against the image of God on earth. You can resist God's beloved community, resist truth, resist equity, resist justice, and resist mercy. You can try to maintain your space at the top of a crumbling racial hierarchy. You won't be there long. You're already in the global minority. And within one generation, you will be in the minority in the United States as well. And when that day comes, you can wage war or you can lean into truth, lean into repentance and repair and allow yourselves to be released forgiven. Only then can we find a new way of being together in the world. I can almost hear my seventh great grandmother, Fortune Gay McGee, who walked this land 10 generations ago and absorbed the wrath of its first race, gender, and citizenship laws into her traumatized body. In my mind's ear, I hear her whisper, Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A More Beautiful Way. Please like, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Jordan for getting this show uploaded onto the internet. Thank you to Jay for all of your production magic. And thank you to all of the paid subscribers at A More Beautiful Way who make this show possible. I'll catch you here next week. Thank you.